Good morning again. It is good to see each of you here. Uh, Chuck Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to answer that question for us and helping us just uh, engage our minds and what it means for us to be culturally relevant and biblically sound. And uh, it's been good for us to kind of have little snapshots of what this looks like in various cultures and for us to think about that. Well, this morning I have the privilege of introducing our, our guest speaker, um, Josh Duff, Dr. Josh Duff. Um, you'll understand why that might be sounding funny to me here in a bit. If you don't know, I grew up with Josh. Um, Josh and I grew up together. And um, I've got memories, various memories of our time together. Um, some of those memories include our, our families uh, did youth ministry together. Our, both of our parents were on volunteer youth staff, and that just kind of put us together as kids often. And so I've got memories of hanging out. We went camping together. Josh, I've got memories of your dad bringing scuba gear to Green Peter. I don't know if you have any memory of this or not, but his dad wanted to go scuba diving in Green Peter and asked my dad, who has a boat, if he would just troll him along. Uh, and he said, I'll just hang on the ski rope and just you just troll. And I've got memory of your dad doing that. I've got memories of collecting uh, salamanders with Josh. I've got memories. We were so determined that we could catch a deer behind his house um, where he grew up. There was a, a field with blackberries, and we were like, we're going to go there and catch a deer. And we tried so hard to catch a deer. We were not successful at all. That's okay. I have memories. I, I was trying to figure out if I would share this or not, but I've got memories, Josh, of you and me trying to trick your younger sister into believing that horse poop was actually chocolate. That just proves that we are human, and <laughs> hopefully we've grown up, though. Josh took off then. His family took off for Cannon Beach. Um, around, I'm, I didn't ask you by the time, but I'm going to say like around 1990. Does that sound about right? Yeah. And uh, I remember just being really bummed that Josh was taken off and uh, did that because his dad took on a position at Ecola Bible College in Cannon Beach as a director. Um, down the road, people do grow up. Josh ended up taking a position as assistant director to his dad. This last year, his dad retired. And Josh, Dr. Josh Duff, uh, took on the position as director of Ecola Bible College. And uh, Josh, I just want to welcome you and just let you know that it is so good uh, to have you here. And I am grateful for the opportunity that you have to connect with us as a church family. So if you would join me in welcoming Josh uh, up here this morning. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to try, I think, to turn this around and do it this way. I was speaking at a church recently, and I, I did this. And uh, while I was engrossed in um, some fascinating New Testament text, no doubt, um, it began to, like, tip and slide. And uh, a pastor, Nathan, at that church, not this one, but at that church, 
leapt from the front row and caught my MacBook right before it hit the floor. It was really something to see. Well, Pastor Nathan and I go way back, as you've heard, and uh, he wrote me recently and said, uh, I would love to have you over to Kingwood um, to share at our missions focus. And I wrote back and said, well, um, I'm really uh, honored to be asked. Um, missions is not really an area of specialization for me. I love missions, and I, I'm glad that there's people um, who are called to it and do it well. Um, that just hasn't really been in my calling. He said, this is not going to be a traditional missions focus. This is going to have more of an emphasis on, on cultural engagement and how can we be fruitfully on mission uh, in our own spheres of influence. And I'm like, ah, my life mission. This is something I'm very, very happy uh, to be talking about about. Um, let me uh, say a word of prayer and, uh, and we'll uh, go to the word. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, for this church. Thank you for uh, its commitment to your word. Thank you for its commitment to the Great Commission, uh, its desire to fruitfully engage the world around it. Uh, thank you for um, its courage uh, to hang uh, 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 to hang on tight to hold fast uh, to the unchanging word of God uh, allowing it to be that plumb line allowing it to be the guide uh, the authoritative voice of truth um, as this church goes out into the world on mission we pray that you would be with us illuminating our study this morning in Jesus name amen well, this is <clears throat> the third uh, in your three-part series. And so uh, Pastor Nathan began talking about cultural relevance. And some of you shared that one of the things that, that concerns you when, when you think of cultural relevance is um, cultural re relevance often comes at a cost, right? And so uh, very often the churches that pride themselves the most in cultural relevance don't particularly pride themselves on their biblical soundness. And, uh, and, and many times it, it comes to a point where the, the Bible engagement is, is weak or non-existent. And, you know, the, the orthodoxy becomes so generous it just kind of fades away. And churches like that, unfortunately, very often they, they lose the potency of, of their mission. Um, they lose their vision. Uh, beyond just mere cultural engagement. So that, that's a concern um, that a number of you had. So as, as Pastor Nathan was sharing about this, he said, we must, however, understand our culture well enough to know whether or not our attempts at communicating the gospel even stand a chance of being heard. And that is so true. We need to we need to have enough of an understanding of the cultural around uh, culture around us, and, and this is particularly, I think, you know, as, as he was referencing the friendships that you have with your neighbors and coworkers and so forth. This is particularly in our own small spheres of influence. Most of us have small spheres of influence. Uh, we don't have huge, you know, platforms with a hundred thousand Twitter followers, that sort of thing. But we have relationships in our lives that are significant. We need to know those little subcultures well enough that we can effectively speak the truth of the gospel into those. So that was a really uh, key point there. The second piece was biblically sound. And so Pastor Nathan talked, um, uh, he, he used a couple of images. One was the gathering storm. And we see that, that great adventure 
of the the voyage from Caesarea uh, out to Rome uh, in Acts chapter 27 and and what begins as, you know, a a light breeze uh, turns into a full and, and very nearly lethal gale. And this image of a gathering storm and the metaphor of, of shipwrecking one's faith um, is, a, is a powerful vision for how we need to make sure that we're not being swept along by the winds of culture. Uh, it, there, there comes a point in that story where they cast you know, all the ships rigging overboard. In other words, they've given up all ability to even steer the ship and they're just driven by the winds. We don't want to be there. We don't want to be swept along in the, in the culture without any uh, ability to, um, to, to direct our lives by the course that Scripture would give us. Secondly, there was that image of the plumb line, a very simple but powerful image of something that there is, you know, the, the, the plumb line, the string with the weight on the bottom, um, is uh, it, it, it just simply works by gravity, and it becomes this perfectly vertical line which, which can set a true standard um, for the building of a wall or, or a, a building of some kind. Scripture is like that. It's like the plumb line that never changes. Um, it, it's, it, it, it works by God's um, sovereign and eternal um, uh, revelation. It's a gift to us, and we need to uh, we need to build our lives and our mission by it. I want to go with you this morning as we try to uh, wed together this idea of cultural relevance and biblical soundness. I want you to go to one of my very favorite texts, First um, Corinthians. Uh, I'm going to begin in chapter two, and then we're going to uh, flip back into chapter one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says this. It's one of my very favorite verses in all the Pauline epistles. He says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, um, the mission to Corinth happens on the second missionary journey. Uh, first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas, um, they head over to Cyprus and, and then they go up into Asia Minor and they, they plant some churches and they establish some elders. And, and uh, after a season of, of uh, uh, church life back in Antioch, um, we have the... Um, the, the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, and, and Paul and Barnabas, having received uh, the, the unanimous word from the elders in Jerusalem that the Gentiles do not need to be circumcised in order to be saved, decide this would be a great time to retrace our steps on the first missionary journey and go encourage the churches. Let's encourage them with the good news. And so this is, unfortunately... Uh, where Paul and Barnabas have their falling out over, over Mark. Remember this. And Barnabas ends up heading to Cyprus to retrace the steps to go encourage the churches, uh, which is what he was so well equipped to do, Barnabas being the son of encouragement. And Paul sets out on a new course, and he heads across Asia Minor, 
And through a series of kind of misadventures, he ends up making his way into Europe. And so uh, a church is planted in Philippi. The gospel is shared there. They work their way down the coast into Thessalonica. A church is planted there in very hostile territory. Uh, they go down to Berea when, when uh, things in Thessalonica get, it's, 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 it gets to the point where um, there's so much friction between the Pauline mission and, what's, and, and the Jewish people in Thessalonica um, that they need to get Paul out of there. So he heads down the coast to, to Berea and he plants a church there. And the Thessalonican uh, unbelievers work their way down the coast and they start riots in Berea. And so Paul has to flee from there and they send him off to Athens. And we have the great, we have the great sermon that Paul gives at the Areopagus in, in Acts chapter 17. And then soon after, Paul finds his way down to Corinth. Now, Corinth is a stone's throw south of, of Athens. It's in um, what would be modern day Greece. And and uh, Corinth was an important city. It was a trade city. There's an isthmus, a, a very narrow neck of land um, in Corinth uh, that, that caused the, the seafaring people who had trades, they would they'd actually carry their ships and their cargo right across that, that narrow strip of land. And so there was constantly people coming and going through Corinth. And Paul being a strategic missionary... Uh, he always had this strategic mindset. He always wanted to be in busy places. And, uh, you, you know, I mean, there's, there's, I don't want to get derailed on this, but there's something to be said for um, the, the different ways that God has given us. Jesus was very much, uh, seemed to be very much someone who loved the country. He spent a lot of time in the wilderness. People had to come to Jesus very often uh, out in small villages, out in wilderness areas. Paul, every time you find him, he is in the busiest part of the busiest cities. He's always walking uh, the crowded trade routes. He's always going into the thick of the crowds uh, to, to share the gospel. So strategically, he wants to be in Corinth where he's going to have an opportunity both to share the gospel and to see the gospel being carried out by those travelers into other parts of the Roman world. And so as Paul uh, begins his ministry in Corinth, he receives a vision from God that he is going to be able to spend a long time there. And, and, and God says to him in vision that his many people in the city of Corinth that need to hear the gospel and they're going to be converted. And so um, God tells Paul that he'll receive protection and he just needs to cool his heels for a while and establish the church in Corinth. We're so glad he did because Paul's heart, you can tell, uh, just really beat for the, for the Corinthians. He loved that church, but it was a troubled church. And it was a church that it was, it was, uh, it, it was an amalgamation of different cultures. It was a very, it was a very complex environment. You would have had everything in Corinth from, uh, from, from people who uh, were in a condition of slavery to people who owned many slaves. You had this, this, this vast, um, you know, spectrum of, of, you know, socioeconomic status. You'd have every race. You'd have many people of, uh, you know, with different religious backgrounds. And Paul wants to share a gospel that's going to appeal to these different cultures and gather these people into one assembly that worships and serves the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul reminds the Corinthians as he, 
as he begins this letter uh, to, the Cor- to Corinth, he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Well, what does that mean? Does this mean that Paul just went about telling people um, Jesus Christ was crucified? That's all I know. Jesus Christ was crucified. That's all I know. Well, certainly not. Um, we see that later in this letter, in fact, I'll flip there in uh, chapter 15, uh, Paul gives the gospel in a nutshell this way, differently than he does in chapter 2. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand by this gospel. You are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. And so we can see that when Paul says, I resolve to know nothing but Christ crucified, what he's talking about there is, I resolve to know nothing but the core truths of the gospel. I I resolved as I engaged with these different people from these different cultures and these different backgrounds, I resolved to be focused on the core truths and the core event and the core person of the gospel that is Jesus Christ. And we're going to see, you know, as as we engage with Paul's writings, we're going to see that in Romans and Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians, Paul traces the significance of Christ's death and resurrection out into all these different areas of life. And he, he plugs it into the historical arc that begins in Genesis and goes to Revelation. He talks about history and he talks about eschatology. He talks about our justification and our sanctification. He talks about what it means for the individual, and he talks about what it means for fractured communities. But it's always his resolve to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified that allows him to speak these different truths in different ways. They'll emanate from the core of the gospel. So the Pauline mission is this commitment to keeping the authentic, historical, biblical gospel of Jesus Christ at the center of the mission. You know, in uh, the section I just read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, according to the scriptures, twice. Now, um, Paul did not have the benefit of being able to turn to the epistle of James or 1 Peter um, or even his own uh, magisterial Romans. Um, But he went to the scriptures. He loved the scriptures. And he would go into the synagogue and he would go into the streets and he would and and he would probably very often um, from memory uh, uh, expound on the scriptures, quote the scriptures and talk about how Jesus Christ fulfilled um, Jewish expectation um, by suffering, dying and being raised from the dead. Now, if you'll flip back to first Corinthians chapter one. We have a passage which has 
puzzled many people throughout the generations and fascinated many people throughout the generations. Now, my, my doctorate is in uh, philosophy and religion. It's an interdisciplinary degree, and, and uh, my, my uh, uh, scholarly expertise is actually philosophical engagement of Paul's writings and, and ideas. And uh, my, my unique specialization was 19th century um, engagement of, of, of Paul, particularly with Friedrich Nietzsche, the, the notorious atheist. This was a passage that Nietzsche found fascinating and irritating. Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its own wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness that was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. That last verse in particular may have puzzled you. I'll, I'll comment on that um, and, uh, and uh, put your anxieties to rest if we have time. All right, let's look at this verse at a time. Uh, one of the things we see about the gospel is that it's countercultural. Um, it's a prophetic word that confronts culture. Um, and so when Paul's going into Corinth and he, he resolves to know nothing but Christ crucified, when he's sharing the word of the cross, he understands that this is not something which is going to sit comfortably with everyone else's worldview. This is not the ancient Corinthian zeitgeist, Christ and him crucified. This is something radically different. Now, from the perspective of the world, the gospel is folly. It's foolishness and it's weakness. And Paul understands that. And yet, he remains committed to the biblical message of the crucified and risen Messiah. He understands that it's a confrontation with culture. He understands that this is not what people are looking to hear. And yet he knows that it's speaking directly um, to the needs of the human heart. From the gospel perspective, the world's wisdom is folly. And so that's that confrontation. The world thinks that the gospel is folly, and the gospel knows that the world's wisdom is folly. And so there's this critical engagement between the Pauline mission and what else, what else is going on in the world. Now, the gospel is relevant to culture because the world's wisdom could never offer a saving knowledge of God. So Paul understands the relevance of the gospel is that it offers, well, what the world is looking for in all the wrong places. It speaks to the needs of human individuals and the needs of human cultures.
So the gospel is relevant. Um, now, Paul understands that even in a place like Corinth, even in the places where he would, would um, uh, carry out his mission, there's not just one unified culture, right? There are various subcultures. There are different kinds of people with different perspectives. Wealthy merchants saw the world differently than, than indentured uh, servants would. Um, women would see things from a different perspective than the men would. Um, people with different religious backgrounds would have very different perspectives on things. Now, Paul chooses two. In this text, he refers to the Greeks and he refers to the Jews. And with this very penetrating insight into Greek culture, Paul says, the Greeks have a wisdom culture. And boy, was that true. The Greeks prized wisdom. And the Greeks loved listening to new ideas, and they loved reading the texts and, 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 and um, quoting the dialogues of the great philosophers. Now, by the time Paul arrives in Athens, it's, it's been centuries since the, the great philosophers, uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, had come and gone. And, uh, you know, the... the the, the Greeks prized their, their heritage with those thinkers, but it had been a long time since anyone of great and towering philosophical significance had been in, Greek, in, in Greece. But Paul says the Greeks have a wisdom culture, and they're pursuing wisdom, but they're pursuing it in the wrong places. The world and its wisdom did not come to know God. The Greeks, whatever... Whatever, you know, stumbling advances they might have made toward truth through general revelation, they were never able to really come to know God as we can know him through Jesus Christ. And Paul also turns to the Jews and he says the Jews have a sign and power culture. The Jews are looking for miraculous intervention. They're looking for signs that God is on the move. They listen to the voices of the prophets. You can sense as you're reading the Gospels, there's just this tension in the air throughout ancient Palestine. Might Jesus be the one? And there's just this intense sense of expectation as Jesus goes through ancient Palestine and he begins giving signs. He heals a man born blind and he heals someone of leprosy. And as you're seeing these different signs that Jesus does, the people are going, boy, he might be the one. Paul has this insight into that culture. Now, you know, and I know that Paul was both a Roman citizen who was part of the Jewish diaspora, and he was a Jewish person who was circumcised the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin. He was schooled under Gamaliel in the city of Jerusalem. He received the like Harvard equivalent education for a young Jewish intellectual. He had probably, by the way, New Testament scholars, one of the things that, that New Testament scholars, secular and not, really actually admire about Paul is that, that he had such a deep understanding of the Torah. Uh, he had probably memorized it. Now, sometimes people overstate how well uh, first century Jews knew the Torah. Not everyone had the leisure to memorize it, but someone like Paul apparently did. 
He was very good at plucking, apparently from memory, just the right text for just the right argument as he's writing his letters, letters like Romans, for example. And so Paul understands something about Jewish culture. He also understands something about Greek culture because he grew up, uh, grew up in a city. Uh, Paul's, of course, from Tarsus. And um, Tarsus was a city, it was a university city, like Alexandria and Athens. It was a place where people went to study philosophy, particularly the Stoics. And so Paul understood that aspect of Greek culture, which, which just hungered and thirsted for knowledge and for wisdom. And so he's confronting these two cultures in this message of the cross. And he's saying, this culture looks for wisdom. This culture looks for signs and miracles. And the message of Christ crucified is what? It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's a scandal to them. And it's foolishness to the Gentiles. The word that he uses for Gentiles there, um, it, it comes from uh, ethne. Uh, usually when the New Testament translates Gentiles, it's coming from ethne, which, which just really means nations. Um, and uh, when he says it's foolishness to the nations, it broadens the scope. He says, this message of Christ crucified, is, is, it's a scandal to the, the, the inner Pharisee, and it's folly to the minds of the nations of the world. It's that countercultural. And so, um, the countercultural gospel, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, being uh, biblically faithful will often mean that we are speaking prophetically to culture, that we are calling culture to look at things in a radically different way, that perhaps we're providing culture what it's looking for, but again, looking for in all the wrong places. We may be saying something to the culture around us that is so radically dissonant, they just think it's weakness and folly. In fact, the religious people in our lives may be scandalized by the gospel, scandalized by the message of salvation by grace apart from works. It may seem preposterous to them, but we need to speak the prophetic word of the gospel with sensitivity to how our hearers are going to receive it. And so what I love about this text in first Corinthians is that scholars and philosophers have been engaging with it since it was written. This text is nearly 2000 years old now. We're on the opposite side of the world from which it was written. And yet today, contemporary secular scholars continue to read and to study this text and puzzle over it. Huh. A frontal assault on philosophy. A demand that someone consider the claims 
of a crucified and resurrected Messiah. When Paul was preaching to the Jews, we know what he would do. He would go into the synagogue and he would result in nothing but Christ and him crucified. And in the case of sharing the message to the Jews, contextualizing it for the Jews, he would go into the Old Testament and he would show them why their expected Messiah would have to suffer. And that for Paul would mean showing them that the Mosaic covenant was never adequate for taking away people's sins. That the sin that had entered the world through the one man, Adam, would have to ultimately be resolved through the one man, Jesus Christ. And that there would need to be a path toward a new kind of humanity. That's how he would share the gospel with the Jews. And when he would go to the Greeks, as we saw in his, his as we see in his message uh, at Mars Hill, he would look at the Greeks and he would say, you seek wisdom, but you're an idolatrous culture. You're looking for God in the wrong places. For all your wisdom, there's still, there's still so many idols in Athens. And Paul would begin to tell them the truth about who God is. How he doesn't dwell in temples built by human hands. How he's not served, but how he's near. He's not way out there, um, far away from us. Um, he's near to us. In him we live and move and have our being. He can quote their own poets. But then at the end of the, the message at Mars Hill, Paul will share the gospel in such a way that say all mankind will stand judgment before Jesus Christ whom God has appointed, giving evidence by raising him from the dead. And so once again, Christ, uh, Paul going to the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he shares the message with that different culture. I mentioned Nietzsche earlier. Listen to what Nietzsche says about the message of the cross. Modern men, obtuse to all Christian nomenclature. We get numb to our own language, right? We speak in Christianese sometimes, and, it, and we get so familiar with it, it kind of loses its punch. Modern men, obtuse to all Christian nomenclature, no longer feel the gruesome superlative that struck the classic taste in the paradoxical formula of God on the cross. Never yet and nowhere, Nietzsche writes, has there been an equal boldness in inversion. Anything as horrible and questioning and questionable as this formula, it promised a revaluation of all the values of antiquity. What Nietzsche says is, you know, we modern people, and, and Nietzsche, by the way, was, um, he was a, a Lutheran pastor's son, and both of his grandfathers were Lutheran pastors. He lost his faith in seminary as too many people do. And he understood being steeped in that German uh, Lutheran culture. He understood that people had lost their sense of how radical the gospel actually is. And he says the, that paradoxical formula of God on the cross forced a revaluation of the values of the ancient world. What Nietzsche is saying 
is that this message of the gospel in its confrontation with Greece ended up changing Greece. It ended up affecting their culture. Now, Nietzsche didn't like Christianity, and he didn't like the gospel, and he thought it made people weak. But it did change the culture. It's that message of Christ and him crucified. Now, um, in just a few minutes, I want to share with you something that I think is you know, a, a word for our day and, and the way that the gospel might be contextualized um, in, in the, the subcultures that we dwell in. We live in a world in which people have followed Nietzsche's path and they value self-realization. And people are obsessed with themselves. Paul said to Timothy that in the last days, people would be lovers of themselves. And that's certainly true of our day. People are obsessed with themselves and becoming um, who they want to be. And the gospel is a confrontation with that kind of mindset that says, rather than pursuing self-realization, perhaps you should go the other direction and pursue crucifixion together with Christ. End your life and begin it anew. That's the good news of the gospel for the individual. That there is an opportunity to become a brand new creation. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You get a new heart. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Adamic community is crucified so that the new humanity can be resurrected and go gloriously forth. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I think that the gospel is a powerful countercultural word to a world that is loving itself and seeking its own uh, self-realization. Very briefly, the cross, the message of the cross, the biblical gospel is also a powerful countercultural word for the fractured communities that we see around us. Have you ever seen the world so tense and so divided? It's been madness. The tribalism gets worse every week. People have lost the ability to listen to each other. There's no political goodwill anymore. But the message of the cross cuts across the social dimension as well. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Colossians three eleven says here, there is no Jew nor Greek circumcised 
or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, Christ is all and is in all. It's a message of radical unity that can be found as we gather under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Not seeing those, you know, uh, extrinsic parts of other people, not seeing their gender or their socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomic status or, or seeing what cultural background they might have, but seeing them as a new creation in Christ. One more, Galatians 3.28, you know it well. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. One of, the, one of the great living philosophers today is a French philosopher by the name of Alain Badou. He wrote a book uh, called St. Paul, the, the Founder of Universalism, in which he, as an atheist Marxist, kind of wistfully reads Paul's writings and says, if only we could say something similar. Here there is no Jew nor Greek male nor female, slave nor free. If only we as secularists could form such a strong unity among diverse groups of people. But he can't. Zizek, another atheist philosopher, looks at texts like this and says, there is something about the Christian message which we can't replicate. And so in our secular philosophy, he essentially says, we should continue to act as though some of the core of the gospel message is true, that there's no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, but we are all one. Because that, that is the foundation for a strong community, a strong humanism, um, a robust unity. To be culturally relevant and biblically sound, I think what we need to do as a church is we need to get into our Bibles and we need to learn them well. We need to learn the gospel better each day. And when we learn the gospel as, 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 as people commissioned by Jesus Christ to share the good news in the world, as we learn the gospel, we will be more prepared to articulate the gospel into the felt needs of our surrounding culture. And so having our eyes on scripture and a couple fingers on the pulse of culture will be able to translate, translate the gospel into the needs of culture. I think right now there's, there's a real need for a message of the hope that we can experience as, as lost individuals when we turn to Christ. To, I think to be crucified with Christ and to become a new creation is the best possible news. So many people are hungry for a fresh start, but they're just looking in the wrong places. I think a message of a radically unified humanity is so needed right now. But people have given up on unity, and so they're just hoping that their tribe will win. And so they're just fighting harder and harder. When we come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ and respond in faith, very diverse groups of people, and there's diversity in a room like this, to be sure. Diverse groups of people can love each other well and extend grace. So what we need to do to be culturally relevant and biblically sound is 
to know our neighbors around us and to be aware of the needs and culture, to be able to say, as Paul said, you know, the Greeks, they have a wisdom culture and the Jews have a sign culture. And I'll share the gospel differently when I'm speaking to Greeks than I will to Jews. Just like you would probably share the gospel differently if you were speaking to a, a, a member of BLM versus a member of the NRA, right? They're just different cultures. You would articulate the same gospel in a nuanced way for a Black Lives Matter activist versus a, a, a paid-up member of the NRA. There's different cultures. Um, and so a sensitivity to that with a, a robust understanding of, of uh, the gospel is where we need to go. Well, very practically, one of the things I try to encourage people to do every chance I get um, some of you, I know you struggle to get into the word and you, you struggle to make sense of it. And, you know, you try reading Romans and it's depressingly difficult to unpack and, and you, you know, find yourself in Ezekiel and you just want to pull your hair out because you're just, you're, you're trying to figure out who are all these nations and what does this prophecy mean? And it is challenging. One of the things you can do is a baby step though. If you're struggling to stay consistent in your scriptures, is start every day by reading a section in the gospels. As, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to know who Jesus Christ is, right? I think most cultures try to make peace with Jesus. And so very often, Jesus is formed into the image of culture. And I, I see people very often treating Jesus as though, you know, he's just a, you know, he's just a good socialist, or he's just a good Democrat, or he's just a good Republican, or he's just a good whatever, fill in the blank. But Jesus was, he was Jesus, he was unique, and he was wonderful, and he was loving, and quite honestly, sometimes terrifying. And as I, a longtime believer, I, I begin every day by reading a section in the Gospels. As I sit down with my coffee in the morning, and I'm so often challenged by the Jesus that I meet there. I'd encourage you to do the same. Spend some time, spend some time in the Gospels looking at the historical Jesus. By the way, if you read one or sometimes two of those sections a day, you read through the Gospels once a year. Uh, and that's been my habit for quite some time. Also, read the epistles. Don't be afraid of Romans. Learn to love Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians with all their hope. Read the, the, the stern warnings of James. Look at the practical example of Peter. Those readings are they're designed for the church to prepare believers to be able to live out the gospel well, uh, as, as, as Peter says, as resident aliens, as people who, well, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of on the fringes of culture. We're, we're here, um, but this is not really our home. Engage the word of God. Be faithful to it. It will make you more fruitful in your mission. Your cultural relevance uh, is going to be enriched by your deep understanding of the gospel and your God-given uh, ability to articulate it to people. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the hope that we find in the gospel for each of us as individuals, sinners in need of grace. Thank you for the hope 
that the cross of Jesus Christ gives for fractured communities to come together in unity and for very different people to love each other well. Lord, I pray that, that we as the church of Jesus Christ would be so devoted to Scripture and so committed to the gospel that when we see needs in our cultures around us, among our neighbors and friends and co-workers, that we would be able to speak gospel truth into those lives. We pray for this knowing that we depend upon your help. In Jesus' name, amen.